we get a bit irritated when someone wishes peace for us because this is not what we long for we long for a victory we long for being a free country once and for all and there is no way for us but to it so we're not really given a choice in the questions of hope hello and welcome the Art Persists podcast, a new series offering a glimpse into the life of artists and activists from all over the world, here to share their stories with you, the listener. In each episode, we feature interviews with artists who share their first-hand experience of using their work to stand up to some of the world's most feared dictators and regimes, and individuals working day and night to protect them. My name's Georgia, and in this episode, I interview Zhenya Olinik, an illustrator and cartoonist from Kyiv, Ukraine. Zhenya is a former journalist and a cultural critic. Whatever her occupation is, she mostly works with human rights-related topics. Ever since the Russian full-scale invasion of Ukraine in February of this year, she has been creating graphic stories about her experience of living in a country under attack. I interview Zhenya remotely from her house in Kyiv, she began the interview by talking about some of the art that has influenced her own practice over the years. Uh, if we talk in terms of what inspired me as an illustrator and as an artist, it probably will be the early avant-gardist artists. The art of the early 20th century. If someone asked me when would I want to leave in the past, this would be this, uh, this exact period of time, because everything that they did back then was new, like brand new. And I guess we, uh, we can't experience that kind of novelty now. So are you talking about like the early, early 20th century, so kind of before the First World War to timestamp it? Is that kind of time? Right after the uh, Impressionists. Yes. Because uh, it's not like they uh, deconstructed traditional art for, it's not like artists did that for the first time because even in Renaissance, uh, the, I don't know, let's take Rembrandt, he did some very Impressionist Thing. But what uh, avant-gardists did, they actually institutionalized that deconstruction and that actually really mesmerized me. And uh, right prior to the war, there was this exhibition in Kiev about Ukrainian futurists and I was amazed by how these people were captivated by this possibility of entirely new things and it's even more frustrating how their lives turned out to be because Ukrainian uh, futurists and avant-gardists in particular uh, they witnessed the the Soviet Union emerging and a lot of them uh, sincerely supported the, the, those ideas and the whole idea of this entirely new society and most of them ended quite badly. They either immigrated or were murdered or uh, eventually committed suicide because they understood that the ideals and the ideas they supported uh, turned out to be a, uh, some bloody genocide. And apart from this 
the sense of novelty, I just like the way they rethought the usual principles of the visual languages that existed already. And I just, I really appreciate this bravery. And the visual languages itself that they created is kind of calling from, to me. And if you get a closer look to what I do, you can see that I, I am clearly inspired by them. Yeah, I think as you said that, I thought actually, yes, I can definitely see it. Well, thank you. And I want to talk about your work in a bit. But first, I would love to know a bit more about your early life, where you grew up, what life was like, and that kind of thing. Uh, well, I was born and raised and uh, have been living in Kiev my entire life. I am from a family of an architect and a forensic scientist. Wow. <laughs> And uh, the first my is my the first one is my dad and the second one is my mom and I, I guess uh, this is how I was introduced to art in the first place because my dad draws and he's a uh, an artistic person I definitely got my drawing skills from him and I visited my parents yesterday and uh, for some reason uh, we talked about my childhood and my dad was like telling me how amazed he was how at the age of three or something i could draw a circle without putting the uh, pencil of paper <laughs> and i uh, i've been drawing for as long as i remember myself but uh, it never actually appeared to me that this could be like a real profession so in school i was good at writing languages and bad at math uh, so it felt like uh, journalism would be a, a good choice and I did work uh, as journalist for some time, but then I realized it was way too introverted for uh, being a really good journalist and I went like back to square one to <laughs> drawing in the corner. <laughs> That's so interesting. I also feel the same because I did a bit of journalism before. And I also felt like I was way too introverted to do it, you know, like I got really shy all the time and always felt like I wasn't doing it right. But that's really interesting. So did you did you study art after that or did you just develop your own skills um, like on your own? I don't have the uh, classic artistic education. Uh, like I didn't go to the Academy of Arts, uh, but I did study uh, cultural studies. So I did study history of art. And then I uh, completed a two uh, short courses at uh, the Projector School of Design that is based in Kiev. And those were not uh, particularly about the drawing skills, but about ideas and developing your visual language. And um, though they were three months each, it really gave me a good start for my illustrator's career. Actually, interesting you say that because a, a lot of what I've seen of your work is kind of using art to provoke conversations and kind of explore different ideas and kind of look at different issues even before obviously the invasion of Ukraine. Do you feel like they all kind of came together in that way, the journalism, illustration and then kind of using art as a way of expressing your feelings, your thoughts, your beliefs? 
Mm-hmm. Yes, they they actually did because that was my way of doing journalism without doing journalism. Because for me, writing a a good journalistic story is about uh, making some difference and uh, casting light to something really important and that is not talked about enough. And while I couldn't really do it with words anymore, uh, I started do it, doing with that with images. And that is a great part of motivation for me uh, to draw something that will eventually make some change. So. A lot of my work is somehow human rights related, and uh, I try to participate in projects that are uh, somehow connected to human rights and feminism and uh, culture. Uh, and uh, for me, uh, art was never really something escapist. Like uh, my colleague, she tries write a lot about the war in Ukraine, particularly for her American audience. And uh, she often says, I would love to go back to drawing flowers and trees and beautiful landscapes, but I can't. And I feel in that moment, like I really have nowhere to go. Uh, I don't have like that fear of my artistic life. Well, that in a way there uh, never was such place for me, like somewhere I could hide from quote-unquote real life. I had a talk for her students not so long ago and I was showing my projects from, uh, from the last couple of years and I realized that I have drawn uh, all the war because, uh, for example, I have illustrated a book about rape camps in Bosnia and uh, one of my, of my recent book covers were about these relationships and uh, the other cover I did two years or a year and a half ago was about Yugoslavian wars. So, like, there is nothing new for me and this is exactly why I don't don't really draw as much about war. I mean, proportionately, not not as much as my colleagues do, uh, comparing to how much they did work with some heavy topics before. Yeah. And I wanted to ask you, obviously you're in Kiev now, how is life for you? Are you okay? Are you safe? Is your family safe? I mean, we are, but... Uh, as much as you can be in a country that is uh, under a full-scale attack. But it is also true that some parts of Ukraine are much safer than the others. And of course, no one is protected from the missile attacks now. And they do happen from time to time in uh, different parts of Ukraine. But uh, comparing to the first month of war, when the Russian troops were 30 uh, kilometers from where I live, it feels much safer. You could feel it right after they left, how the city actually tries to get back to life as fast as it, as, as it can, because everyone wants to continue with their lives and their businesses. So now life in Kyiv is pretty much like it used to be. And if you don't know that uh, Ukraine is under attack, you would probably not notice that, uh, unless you have a air raid alert uh, app on your phone. Yeah, that must, I imagine, be actually really surreal to be having, to be knowing that these things are happening in different parts of the country, but to then also feel like 
you don't feel it necessarily happening directly to you. It doesn't actually feel surreal because we've been living like that for eight years because mm. Russia uh, didn't invade Ukraine on 24th of February this year, but she did it in March 2014. So uh, it always uh, has been happening somewhere more or less near ever since. A work that you created that I really love is called Wartime in Kyiv, actually, uh, that you did for the Nib. Can you just tell us a little bit about that work? Because I really loved it, kind of how it combined imagery and with a kind of comic, almost humorous in parts uh, outlook. It is humorous because I remember the time is humorous. Okay, some some of the images uh, there are from our bike ride that we took a week after the uh, Russian troops left. And we were riding and it was so weird. But spring was, uh, you, you could feel it in the air and uh, like the trees were about to burst in green. And it was really warm for the first time. And <laughs> we were riding and... Uh, uh, there is uh, this lake and the kids are playing near it and there are gunshots somewhere in the distance and <laughs> I don't know, it felt really weird but also good in a way, I don't know. Kiev was like a bit dead for a month or so and it was really nice to see how it was coming back to life. And of course uh, it doesn't feel like this anymore. Uh, it feels uh, more or less normal comparing to, I don't know, the, the last year, for example. But that transitional time was really, really weird. Like, uh, the spring was starting and the suburbs near Kyiv were liberated from Russian uh, occupation and we discovered the sites of mass murders there. So there was this shock and grief but at the same time, the understanding that uh, spring is here and like life is short and you have to enjoy it anyway. Yeah, I can so imagine that. I wanted to ask you something about, yeah, just about what the role of art is for you then. It must be, I guess, nice in a way to, to see and feel all that's going on and have this kind of medium where you can channel it do you is that what art is for you in a way like a way of expressing what you're feeling inside actually for me uh, it's a horrible uh, scary thing in a way therapeutic because uh, with the mental health issues and uh, as my therapist that through art we make something unspeakable a symbol and then uh, it can be described and expressed verbally and then it transfers from our uh, subconscious to us to our consciousness and then it's not that traumatic anymore so uh, it's my way of dealing with art uh, this this is uh, the process of turning something unspeakable into something that can be described and can be actually drawn. Yeah, that's that's really beautifully said. I mean, now turning to something that you actually wrote rather than drew, I was really, really interested and I've thought a lot about it. Instagram, you 
made recently where you mentioned the complexities of speaking Russian fluently and how Russian imperialism extends through language. Could you elaborate on it a little bit for someone like me who doesn't quite understand the the complexities of it? It's a really hard and sensitive topic for me because uh, the language problem is very much manipulated in Ukraine. Russian language is my mother tongue. Like uh, I did spoke my first words in it and my family uh, spoke Russian like up until the day before the uh, full scale invasion. We just uh, like <laughs> we just uh, came together and and said and uh, talked again about what if Russia invades us again, and then we were like, why are we speaking Russian after all? <laughs> Let's not do this. Uh, and so we stopped, and uh, we uh, still speak Ukrainian. But um, I understand a lot of people for whom it's harder to make this transition because uh, we started speaking Ukrainian in our family in a very stressful situation. Mm. But the the other reason why uh, a lot of people still speak Russian in Ukraine because there is this internalized understanding that Ukrainian is somehow a, a inferior language that everything that is connected to being Ukrainian is inferior and I haven't realized it very quickly in my life like for a long time I thought that we live in a free country where everyone can choose a the language they speak freely. But I didn't really thought that somehow a lot of people choose Russian instead of Ukrainian and uh, didn't really go very deep into why that is happening. And I'm talking that uh, that much about it because it's a really long story with the Russian language in Ukraine. And for example, versification in my family goes to my grandma and my grandpa, who were the first people in my family who came from village to the city. And uh, the language of the village was Ukrainian, though in some regions it was pretty russified already. But the language of the city always was Russian, and it was uh, and being from the village was was somehow shameful. So uh, you had to speak Russian. This is actually how my family ended up uh, speaking Russian because they migrated from uh, village to the city. This actually causes this internalized Ukrainophobia. Yes. This is something I discovered in language quite recently. So the most uh, common example about imperialism in, in language is how the, the preposition that is used with the name Ukraine. Uh, so uh, we here in Ukraine, we say which is like in Ukraine. And the grammatical norm of Russian language is now Ukraine, which is literally translated on Ukraine. And uh, the thing is that the preposition uh, now is used uh, when we talk about territories and parts of territories. And uh, Ukraine literally was a part of Russia for some time. And the funny thing is that the same preposition now is used also in Czech language and in Polish language. But, for example, when the war started, or I'd better say continued this February, they had 
this discussion. So should we you continue using this preposition or not? And they actually had no problem with the not continuing using it. But when it comes to Russia, they really, really are stubborn with refusing to use it. A couple of years ago, I wrote an article. It was something about LGBT in Ukrainian culture. And it was initially in Russian. And we had a editor from Russia who was correcting the text. And she corrected the prepositions everywhere where I wrote в Украине, she changed to на Украине. And we had a argument with her. Uh, and then she she proposed to change it not to in Ukraine, but on the territory of Ukraine. Wow. And that's right, uh, our uh, international curator for that and explained to her everything I explained to you now. So that she apologized for that Russian editor and we could uh, just leave it be. Yeah. (laughs) The other two examples that I thought of concerning this internalized Ukrainian phobia is the first one is my actual last name, Olinik. In my passport, it is translated to Russian. In Russian, it sounds like Olinik. For years, wherever my name was written in Russian, I insisted on writing it the Russian way. And now I think about it, and I don't really understand why it was my last name translated in the first place and why do I have a page in Russian in my passport in the first place. It it is so weird that these things have never bothered me this much before. They were there all the time and now I see them and now I see how they uh, actually affected the state of things that is now. other example that I thought of, I have a friend who is called Katerina. Uh, it's, uh, the uh, diminutive for this name is Katya, which is, I guess, uh, pretty common in English-speaking words. And uh, the other Ukrainian diminutive for it is Katrusha. And my friend, she grew up in Kiev, just like me. And so she and her friends in her childhood also spoke Russian. And she suddenly remembered how a really mean girl in her neighborhood called her Katrusa specifically to humiliate her. Because even in the age of seven or ten, you already understood that Ukrainian was something bad. It's weird how we already studied in Ukrainian schools back then. We had Ukrainian textbooks and we still perceived it as something bad. That is so, so interesting. And I it, it reminds me a lot of, you know, stories of colonization where English and French was imposed in quite a similar sounding way, I guess. But also it's it's really interesting and I'd be so interested to see how many people like you, as soon as full-scale invasion happened, made that decision to stop speaking Russian. It's It's pretty amazing. And I'm sure in the years to come, we're going to really see that change across a lot of people. Actually, a lot of people uh, in my like social circle that do speak inclusively Ukrainian now. Yeah, so, so interesting. I wanted to kind of go back to the art for a second and talk about a work of yours that really, really stood out to me. I'm really curious mostly just to hear about why you created it and what you were thinking at the time of the creation. It's called Hope, and I'll let you talk more about it, but it shows a bright star in the sky that shines through a scene of a building on fire. 
Could you tell us a little bit about why you made it and what it's all about? It was a work that the New York Times commissioned. And interestingly, I felt zero hope while I was drawing it because the commission came when we fled Kiev. For a short time, uh, we went to Lviv first uh, and then realized it was really, really overcrowded and went to a village near Kiev that seemed safe at the time and stayed there for a week with the, my partner and his family in a really small house. <laughs> And I just spent my days working there because there were a lot of people around, everyone was really stressed. It was like this village with uh, no running water and there was a bug and a cat and we were like on the heads of each other. And I just tried to like go back to my uh, beloved corner and <laughs> do what calms me, calms me down. And it was then when the this commission came and uh, I was asked to illustrate an essay by uh, Ilya Kaminsky. He's a poet initially from uh, Odessa. The essay itself was about how poetry saves people during this uh, hard times and how art gives meaning in in a place where it seems like there can be no meaning. So I guess this was something I tried to project to the future, something I was trying to find a way how to feel in the time. So are you hopeful of the future? There is no other way it can be, I guess. We get a bit irritated when someone wishes peace for us because this is not what we long for. We long for a victory, we long for being a free country once and for all. And there is no way for us but to it. So we're not really given a choice in the questions of hope. Many thanks, Virginia, for joining us for this episode. If you'd like to learn more about her work, you can find links in the description. Coming up next week, we speak to a Uyghur artist, singer and activist now based in London. Thanks for listening and see you there.